Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Thanks for tuning in for another week of travel news, travel tips, and travel chats. April is Jazz Appreciation Month, so we're closing out the month with jazz festivals, jazz cities, and best jazz spots around the world. Two very special guests are joining me in the conversation, Max Myrick, an award-winning air personality, radio programmer, and a lover of jazz. And we'll also have Billy Domingo, Chief Operating Officer of the Cape Town International Jazz Festival. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and part two of the Culture Report with the National Museum of African American Music. But right now, let's get into a little travel news. France is set to start lifting restrictions for vaccinated foreign travelers in May. France's president, Emmanuel Macron, said that France will lift its restrictions on non-EU travelers, including those from the United States for summer travel. The president revealed that French ministers are finalizing the technical discussions over how best to begin easing restrictions, with officials working to develop a system that would enable vaccinated French, European, and also American citizens to travel more freely this summer, stating, we will progressively lift the restrictions at the beginning of May, signaling that France will rely upon some variation of a so-called vaccine passport to restart foreign travel. France is currently contending with another wave of COVID-19 infection and in the midst of its third national lockdown since the pandemic began. This most recent surge in France is also fueled by the country's lag in getting its residents fully vaccinated. But the president has said that Europe's vaccine production has accelerated and they have gained momentum so that France should now hopefully be on track to meet its targets. If you're headed to Hawaii, there's something you should know. Hawaiian Island visitors will have access to a free test to be done at the airport upon arrival at the end of April. And this is according to Maui County Mayor Michael Victorino. Travelers must test negative for COVID 72 hours before departure to Hawaii and upload those results before flight to abstain from quarantining. Anyone who can't show proof of a negative COVID test upon landing must quarantine for 10 days. And according to Hawaii's official health and safety requirements, the first COVID test requirement was put in place October 2020. The secondary test requirement was put in place to monitor if visitors and residents returning from travel are causing an uptick in the case count. The new testing guidance comes on the heels of Hawaii's governor issuing an emergency proclamation that would let fully vaccinated travelers bypass COVID testing and restrictions. Vaccinated individuals would need to upload proof of vaccination by uploading documentation via Hawaii's Safe Travels program. So again, two COVID tests, one 72 hours before departing for Hawaii and the second upon arrival. That one would be free of charge by the island. 
The Obama Presidential Center in Chicago has begun in Jackson Park. The $200 million project began last Wednesday with pre-construction work. Full construction will begin later this year. The Obama Foundation tweeted out a video message from former President Barack Obama who said, The city of Chicago has started preparing Jackson Park, putting in place the infrastructure that will serve as the foundation for the Obama Presidential Center. I'm looking forward to grabbing a hard hat and a shovel and officially breaking ground in Jackson Park in the fall. The Obama Foundation board chairman, Marty Nesbitt, stated, When the center is built, our estimates suggest it will bring 700,000 people to the South Side every year and generate $3.1 billion of economic impact. Mayor Lightfoot said the city is investing in communities that need it the most through this project, stating, through the creation of jobs, infrastructure, enhancements, and more, these investments and economic development will bring about the transformative change our black and brown communities deserve. The site is located a mile from where former First Lady Michelle Obama was born and raised, and where the Obama family lived until they moved to the White House. The center aims to be a focal point to engage young people and have economic impact on the area in terms of affordable housing, jobs, and tourism. There will be major improvements to the area that will increase safety and mobility, anticipating increased traffic demand. New parkland and pedestrian underpasses and CDOT will install a series of strategic safety and operational improvements by adding lanes on Lakeshore Drive and Stony Island Avenue and providing spot improvements at existing bottlenecks, off-street trail and pedestrian underpasses improvements providing ability to travel throughout Jackson Park on bike or foot on off-street trails that will go underneath the street with wide, well-lit underpass crossings. In addition to the Presidential Museum, the campus will include a branch of the Chicago Public Library, a program, activity, and athletic center, a children's play area, and a fruit and vegetable garden. Can't wait for that. A Louisville art gallery will hold an exhibition honoring Breonna Taylor. A new exhibition in Kentucky will honor black lives lost too soon, reflecting in particular on the life of Breonna Taylor, her killing in 2020 and the year of protests that followed in Louisville and around the world. Taylor was a black medical worker who was shot and killed by police officers at her home in Louisville. Promise, Witness, Remembrance. That's the name of the exhibit, and it opened at the Speed Art Museum in Louisville on April 7th, exploring the dualities between a personal, local story and the U.S.'s reflection on too many black lives lost to gun violence and police brutality. It will include work by Thester Gates, Hank Willis Thomas, Nick Cave, and Alicia Wormsley, and it's curated by Allison Glenn. The title of the exhibition emerged from a conversation between Allison Glenn and Breonna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, during the exhibition's planning. The exhibition will mark the first time Amy Sherald's portrait of Taylor, which was used as the September 2020 cover of Vanity Fair, will be publicly exhibited. Amy said, 
I made the portrait for Brianna Taylor's family, first and foremost, and so it's important for this work to be seen in this community in Louisville. Promise, Witness, Remembrance will run through June 6, and further information is available on the Speed Art Museum's website, speedmuseum.org. The State Department will add more than 100 countries to do not travel list as COVID-19 continues to spread. Currently, the department classifies 34 countries as level four, which is do not travel. The U.S. State Department is warning against international travel as it plans to add dozens of countries to its highest level advisory classification to stem the spread of COVID-19. It's reported that about 80% of the world's expected to be raised to level four, adding nearly 130 countries to the State Department's highest designation. The State Department plans would put the department more in line with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's recommendation by destination. For its part, the CDC classifies 141 destinations as level four, COVID-19 very high. The State Department tweeted, as travelers face ongoing risks due to COVID-19, we have updated our travel advisories to better reflect the CDC's science-based travel health notices. We've also considered logistics like testing availability and travel restrictions for U.S. citizens. The decision comes weeks after the CDC announced that fully vaccinated people can travel with low risk to themselves, including internationally, and do not need to quarantine when they return home unless required by their local jurisdiction. Those who return from an international trip are still required to get tested within three days of boarding a flight to the U.S., regardless of their vaccination status, and should still get tested or retested upon returning home. The State Department, which lifted its Level 4 Global Health Advisory Against International Travel in August 2020, now assesses countries on a country-by-country -country basis, much like it did pre-pandemic. American Airlines will bring back drink service to premium passengers starting in May. First-class business and other premium customers will get beverage service starting May 1, but main cabin passengers? and alcohol service will have to wait just a little bit longer. Well, is this a sign that air travel is starting to return to normal? Main cabin customers will have to wait until June 1st to get complimentary beverage service, while alcoholic beverage service and onboard food purchases should come this summer. The airline has been expanding schedules, bringing back jets and recalling flight attendants in anticipation of increased consumer demand entering the busy summer vacation season. American said it made the decision in consultation with the Association of Professional Flight Attendants and experts from a partnership American developed with Vanderbilt University Medical Center. American Airlines plans to operate more than 90% of the domestic schedule and 80% of the international capacity it flew in 2019 this summer, and it's adding 150 new routes for the summer vacation season. Other airlines are following suit with some of the services they offered before the COVID-19 pandemic, which shook up the way carriers care for customers. Southwest Airlines began a limited soda and beverage offering for all customers on March 15 on flights over 250 miles, essentially any flight long enough to enable pilots to get to a cruising altitude, long enough for flight attendants to hand out beverages. 
Delta Airlines announced the return of its traditional in-flight beverages service after a year during which passengers were limited to just bottled water amidst cutbacks in service due to the coronavirus pandemic. The refreshed beverage service began April 14. The Atlanta-based airline will once again offer a plethora of beverage choices, including some alcoholic beverages. And these options will be available on all domestic and select short-haul international flights. The airline is also offering what it termed wellness-focused snacks, as well as cliff bars and almonds, in addition to goldfish crackers and the airline's signature Biscoff cookies, which are those lotus-shaped cookies from the Belgian town of Lembeke since 1932. Yeah, we've been missing those snacks <laughs> for those of us who have taken a flight or two. And Delta also said it will begin to offer passengers flying coast-to-coast -coast routes in Delta One or domestic first-class options to a select hot meal in June and first-class travelers or certain other domestic routes will be offered boxed meals starting in July, but says you must replace the mask in between eating. So you can't just take it off and relax and forget about it. While you're eating, you will have to do so again with wearing your mask. And that's all I've got for travel news. But when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and all that jazz on jazz festivals with special guests, Max Myrick and the Cape Town International Jazz Festival. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm Javon Harley, your host and travel pro. Make sure you head on over to TravelingCulturati.com, connect with me on social media, and join that travel club. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. Traveling to a jazz festival is a wonderful experience and a chance to enjoy the destination and the music you love. To get the most out of both and not return with wish I would've, wish I could've, here are some tips for traveling to a jazz festival. Do your research in advance for the dates of the festival. Be sure to check on any pre and post events and activities. If the festival is a short three or four day festival, you'll be able to attend it in its entirety and explore the destination without any issues. However, if it's a longer festival that spans one to two weeks and you're only attending part of the festival, you may want to wait until the lineup is announced to determine which days to attend the festival. Look for festival packages that will allow you to roam the grounds and pick and choose which performances and venues to attend. The main stage is reserved for the big named artists. However, there are typically smaller stages and venues that showcase some wonderful artists and offer more intimate settings. So you'll wanna check those out. Consider transportation to and from the venues and the location of your hotel. You'll want to avoid spending a lot of time on the road and getting transportation late at night at the end of the day back to your hotel. It may be more expensive for a hotel closer to the festival and you'll save on transportation cost and time. Know the lay of the land. Not all festivals are created equally. Is seating available? 
If seating is available, is it at an additional cost? What food and beverage stations are available? I recommend eating something ahead of time or bringing snacks with you just in case the food is minimally accessible. Something that you don't want or terribly overpriced. What can you bring with you? Especially in today's security environment, large bags and food and beverage may not be permitted, so you'll wanna check all of this out. All in all, do your research and look for bloggers who have attended the festival for insider tips. Oh, and stay hydrated. That's very important. Sometimes we lose track of that when we're at festivals. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. April is Jazz Appreciation Month, so we're closing out the month with jazz festivals, jazz cities, and best jazz spots around the world. So when I thought about this topic, I immediately thought about Max Myrick, an award-winning air personality, radio programmer, and content expert with over 40 years of experience providing content on local and national levels. And I know he's a lover of jazz. Well, hello, Max, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Yes, absolutely. And I know you love jazz. So when did you fall in love with jazz? I think when I was a kid, I mean, I listened to the radio and uh, jazz was in our household and something that I grew up with, just a part of my youth. And as I got older, I continued to love it. I played in a band and we played, you know, jazz. And then at some point in around 2000, I was given the opportunity to do it professionally as uh, the creator of the Real Jazz Channel for XM Satellite Radio. It's a genre, I think that we all know and love, but I think so many of us love it from afar. And then of course it has so many different, maybe genres within the jazz genre. You have your true hardcore jazz lovers and you have the more contemporary jazz that's I think more mixed in with R&B, but certainly- The jazz tree has many branches and it's always evolving. So yeah, you're right, there are different kinds different styles, different levels, and yeah. it's all great. Absolutely. So you have so much experience in the music industry. So how did jazz stand out for you? I'm a fan. So, you know, I've been on radio for 45 years, and I've played all kinds of music, but jazz has been a part of my career. It's just been a part of it. And for me, jazz is, I don't know how to describe this feeling. You know, it's an art form that has its own language and speaks to me and so i like to hear those conversations jazz musicians are geniuses because they have to create in real time every time they play jazz has its own language musicians when they're playing with each other they're really having a conversation it's a very democratic art form so you know if the bass is playing something the drummers might respond saxophones everybody's having this conversation in language jazz then we, as fans of the music, are, you know, benefit from that. We tune into that conversation and it speaks to us. Who's your favorite jazz artist? And I have to add past and present. Well, Wynton Marcellus is a good friend of mine, so he's one of my favorites. He's a genius and I love his music, his compositions, and what he stands for in terms of, you know, of keeping this genre alive, keeping it on track. I like a lot. I like the young guys that are trying to, you know, doing their thing. I mean, 
every generation that has their voice to the conversation. I wish I had been able to meet somebody like Louis Armstrong who just invented everything. I like them all. I mean, they all have something to say. I'm more of a straight-ahead guy than a contemporary guy, but I like some of the contemporary artists past and present as well. And what about your favorite jazz city? You know, I remember you saying that one time we did a show, Chicago versus New York, and without hesitation, <laughs> you're like, right. New no, York. There's no, there's no, I mean, come on. It's the center of the jazz universe. I mean, if you, if, yeah, I mean, just that's it. Now, Chicago is a jazz town. In fact, jazz was developed in Chicago in its earlier days, and a lot of great music has come out of Chicago and continues to come out of Chicago, but when it comes to jazz, the best jazz city in the world is New York, and there's so much jazz there at all times. I mean, the musicians come there to see if they can make it, and it's not an easy thing to do. If you play jazz, you have to really want to do that, because you're not going to get rich or famous, most likely. Those people are giving their life to that music. They're doing it for the love of it, and that's very important, and maybe that's why it's such a rich genre of music is because the majority of the people that get into it don't do so with stars in their eyes it's it's more just for no, the love no. of the music I mean, at, at one point you know a long time ago jazz was what hip-hop is today but that time is long past and the hip-hop generation has sampled jazz so they've basically carried that music forward in their own way and then there are, you know, young guys like Robert Glasper, for example, who are fusing those styles together to create something new. There's a clear parallel between bebop and hip-hop. They even sound the same. So in New York, what are your favorite jazz spots? Oh, man, there's so many. When I lived in New York, I lived in Harlem. So there used to be a spot up there called St. Nick's Pub, but it's long gone, up on 145th Street. But there's, you know, there's... Jazz at Lincoln Center, it has three venues in there. It has the big concert hall, it has the Allen Room, which overlooks the Columbus Circle, and it has Dizzy's, which is a jazz club, so that's one. And then Smoke's, it's up on the Upper West Side. It's a very intimate club, great sound, great food. I love that place. Jazz Standard is a great place to see jazz. Village Vanguard, that's like a pilgrimage. If you like jazz, you just have to go to the Village Vanguard. It's a really tiny venue in a basement down in the village. And of course, the Blue Note, there's Birdland, there's Smalls, which is a really tiny place. There's Iridium, which has more uh, experimental stuff. I, I used to go there a lot. There's Minton's up in Harlem. Minton's is now kind of a supper club, but originally it was a place where bebop was developed back in the 40s and 50s. I went to Minton's a couple of years ago when I was in New York for brunch, and they have a jazz brunch as well, so it it is a great place to go to. Yeah, it's it's owned by Richard Parsons, who used to be the chairman of Time Warner. Now, what about jazz festivals? Do you attend them? Yes. There are festivals that you have to make a pilgrimage to, right? If you're a hardcore jazz fan like myself, there's like the big five or six. You got to check in the Newport at least once in your life. You gotta go to Monterey, out in California. You have to hit the Montreal Jazz Festival. You have to hit the Detroit International Jazz Festival, which is the largest free jazz festival in the world, maybe. It's uh, always Labor Day weekend in Detroit. And you know, Detroit being an international city that borders with Canada. And then there is the not so jazzy New Orleans Jazz and Heritage 
And then, then there are other ones, you know, like Montreux, Switzerland, North Sea Jazz Festival. And then here in D.C. area where I live, there's the Capital Jazz Festival, which is a combination of uh, contemporary jazz and R&B, which is a, it's a great music festival. And there are other ones around the world and around the country. Those are the main ones, in my opinion. Chicago Jazz Festival is another free jazz festival. It happens in the same weekend as Yeah, well, Chicago, we have a lot of free festivals of different genres that start in May and go through September. And most of them, for the most part, are free. But I think one of the two popular ones is the jazz is one, and then the blues festival is another one. I didn't get a chance to go to the one in Montreal, but I went to Montreal and I interviewed the jazz festival organizer. And one of the tips he said is that it's not about the big concerts, but all of the smaller breakouts that happen around the city for about a month, which is just a great time to be there. And D.C. has a great jazz festival, too, that they've been doing for the last, I guess, 20 years now. And it takes place down on the wharf here in, in, in the nation's capital. It's a pretty good jazz festival. So have you There's some really good music out here. So have you traveled to your bucket list festival? I haven't made all of them. Is there one in particular you'd like to travel to that you haven't? Monterey. I haven't made it to Monterey, but I saw my list. Monterey, and now there's an international one I'm trying to get to in Spain. It's called the San Sebastian Jazz Festival. It's up in the Basque region of Spain. I'm trying to get there. I love Basque. I Jazz Festival in Cuba, and it was okay. Afro-Cuban music is a derivative, and so it's a lot more technical than it is blues-oriented, like American jazz. That's one of the things that I love about especially international jazz festivals. We go to two each year. Our company, we take travelers with us to the Cape Town International Jazz Festival in Cape Town, South Africa and the Joy of Jazz Festival in Johannesburg. And one of the things I love is that you get the jazz artists from around the world and you hear, as you said, those differences and those influences that they bring from their own culture into the jazz culture, which, you know, you can discover some really wonderful artists. And that's what I like to do when I go is discover artists that I hadn't heard or known of before, especially from different countries. There are two festivals that are really good at that, and that's Montreux in Switzerland and then the North Sea Jazz Festival in the Netherlands. They just bring people from all over the world, and they just, it's a fusion of styles. It's really great. Yeah, actually, the North Sea Jazz Festival organizers are the ones that brought it to Cape Town, South Africa. And it used to be called North Sea Jazz Festival in Cape Town, but then they changed the name to the Cape Town International Jazz Festival. Max, thank you so much for joining me today and giving us so much wonderful information about jazz, jazz cities, jazz spots, and some jazz festivals that we can all add to our list. Thanks for asking. There's great jazz out here, great cities, Chicago, New York, D.C. There's some great classic clubs around the world. I mean, music's out here. Yeah, and we just got to enjoy it. And we're looking forward to a time where we can get back to enjoying these venues and these festivals. And I know. Yeah. I've been in the house telecommuting for a year. I can't wait to get out and hear some live music. Yeah, it's wearing on us, isn't it? We've got to get back out there. And it reminds me of a show I did a couple of weeks ago, Travel and Your Mental Health, how it impacts your mental health. And this is all right. part of it. So, yeah. yeah, we need these things in our lives. So, again, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you.
One jazz festival we've traveled to for many years is the Cape Town International Jazz Festival in Cape Town, South Africa. I have the pleasure of chatting with Billy Domingo, Chief Operating Officer of the Cape Town International Jazz Festival. And he is one of South Africa's most respected and successful entertainment industry professionals. Domingo's resume includes a true who's who of show business, having worked with some of the world's most famous artists and biggest stage productions in the world. Well, hello, Billy, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hello to you and your listeners, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, it is Jazz Appreciation Month, and as I said, we have such a personal relationship with Cape Town and the Cape Town International Jazz Festival that I had to have you on. So when did the Cape Town International Jazz Festival get started, just to give us some history there? It started about, last year would have been our 21st, this would have been our 22nd year. I joined 23, 24 years ago. Uh, I had original partners who were actually thinking about starting a festival. They'd been to Holland, they'd been to the North Sea Jazz, they'd seen it and then decided that look, we'd like to have one in Cape Town. They approached these guys. Of course, my history had been at Sun City for 20 years. I'd already come from left field of knowing productions from Queen to Rod Stewart to whoever, Sinatra. So I'd done big shows and the previous director asked me, please join us and take care that we can actually do this production. And uh, I joined and yeah, the rest of the history, everyone's gone. It's just me left. But Javon, it takes a village to raise a child. And, you know, when I hear people say me, 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 it's, it's not true. I have an incredible team. I'd say about 90% are female, and that's not a curse. It is a blessing. They have been phenomenally multitasking. And they brought me to the ethos of what the Jazz Festival is all about. And that was creating a platform from which we can actually showcase to the world what Africa is about. We are not about children running around with lots of flies flying around and starving we are a cultured society through the whole of Africa. Yeah, there are places where there's you know, and there's hunger and, and there's a lot of things that aren't right. But in the whole, the spirit of Africa has always been my blessing. I am born in Africa. I will die in Africa. And the music of Africa has always excited me. This is my 52nd year in music. I started in theater as a person of color. I was then told you're very good within six months, but we cannot make you stage manager because you would have to give white stage hands instructions, and that was illegal. I um, persevered. I did not allow that to beat me because, like President Obama, if you say I can't, I shall. And I, um, yeah, I started theater, ballet, opera, and theater as on the whole. My love for theater then took me into music. And I loved the sounds of Earth, Wind and Fire, the Motown sound, that just rhythm. You know, people say it's a jazz festival, you should love jazz. Keep find jazz. Tell me what jazz is. I'm a festival director, one of the founders of the jazz festival. And I like music. And if jazz is a genre that I still haven't defined of music, yeah, then I am a huge, huge advocate for our first trip to South Africa was more than 20 years ago. And actually, the jazz festival was still being called the North Sea Jazz Festival then. This was before we started bringing the groups over. 
But as I said, we've been bringing groups over to South Africa for more than 20 years and attending the Cape Town International Jazz Festival for a good portion of that. So why Cape Town? Why, as you said, with the North Sea Jazz Festival, why was Cape Town a place to have the International Jazz Festival? Well, I think the original Rashid Lombard, who I've known since I was about 12, who was like the founder-founder, um, we were all from Cape Town, so we were born there and we were raised there. The sounds of the ghetto, the sounds of the parties in Cape Town was always what we loved and listened to. And Cape Town has a strong history of music and jazz. So it was a no-brainer that this would be the center for us. If I suppose we were born and raised in Johannesburg, we'd have done a Peter Tladi and done a Joy of Jazz, you know, something else. But Cape Town being where we felt the most comfortable and we felt music should emerge because there were no real festivals in Cape Town and that's how it started. It's affectionately called Africa's Grandest Gathering. How did that come about? It was actually, I thought Clarence Ford, one of the other directors, had coined that phrase until I was very rudely reminded that a newspaper journalist coined that phrase. And he turned around and he said, you've got to come join me because this is Africa's grandest gathering. This is where people meet, East, West, North, South Africa will meet. He coined the phrase and, of course, we just adapted it and adopted it and and we've made it our own. And Africa's made it our own, yeah. They've embraced it. I can concur that it is certainly a grand affair and we have enjoyed every visit that we've had to the Cape Town International Jazz Festival. One of the things I really love is discovering artists that I didn't know about, going into some of those smaller breakout rooms and seeing some of these very intimate performances from someone from faraway places, whether it's from the African continent, the African diaspora, or just anywhere in the world. So that's what I really, really love about it, is how it's set up. And of course, you have your grand stage, but finding those small breakout rooms. Is this something that ESP Africa had in mind when they designed the jazz festival? Yeah, I think there's a lot of discussion. And I think, and I keep saying, because Rashid has left United quite a few years ago, and I've continued the journey that was started by us. The idea was to create this legacy, as I said, and the platform for new artists. But the stage of being, let's start with baseline. You know, the new jazz lover, the new entry level, needs to be drawn in by music that isn't jazz, because jazz has this history of being very plain, controlled, very professional, whereas the young people want to hear what we call kwaito and hip-hop. And to draw them into a festival and to become part of the bigger family, we needed to create a stage that was young, that was vibrant. So uh, Shuma Josi, Mafiki Zola, all the young emerging artists, as you know, from the early days, got that platform. So that was the first. Then we had outside the stage called Basil Mannenberg, could see who was one of our top artists, played with Pacific and lots of artists. And that was really a Cape Town sound because Cape Town has a unique sound of music. And they're very, very tall power as they in fire. They're very funky. They're Chicago's sound of brass. So that stage became that, and the artists who performed on that, including Candy Dolphin, quite a few American artists. Corey Henry, one of my favorite artists, he performed on that stage as well. So it's a big stage. Then we go into the Moses Morelaco stage, and that was a young pianist who died many, many years ago, but incredible. And that stage became the African diaspora stage. That is where you could hear from Sudan to Ethiopia, 
to Angola, music of Africa. And if you really like yourself, was the corners here, Javon, I want you to go and just sit down and listen to something more than what is just mainstream jazz and something that was different. That stage was set up. But calling it the Cape Town International Jazz Festival, we created Rosie's. And Rosie's is pure jazz. It's like 1,000-seater, totally very theatrical in the sense of setting. But that was pure jazz. You could hear every note. And that's where most of the guys, including all our presidents and ministers, would go to because under the name of Cape Town International Jazz Festival, they wanted that. Not everybody wanted to listen to that. Not everybody wanted to listen to serious jazz. They came to be entertained, but they loved jazz and jazz-related music. And then, of course, the main stage, which like Montreux and like New Orleans and like everyone else, you need the commercial stage. So we had from Earth, Wind and Fire to Erika Badu to everyone on the main stage. So you would come because you knew those names. And while you were there, hopefully you could go and listen to jazz and real jazz if you so chose. Yeah, I mean, with Rosie's, it's a festival. Over how many days does the festival run? The festival itself is in different components. So the training and development, and we take 100 school children from the ghetto and from the Cape Flats, and we teach them every year your basic elements of the music industry, from technology to stage manager to technical to whatever you need. And we bring artists of the training. We are known in 21 years for training and development because that's the next generation that we wanted. Then it goes through to the people's concert a week before. And that was something that we always wanted, which was don't let people look through fences at shows. Don't let people stand outside the stadium, listen to music. We fought a revolution to be free of that bondage. Let us share with the people music that they would never, ever, ever have been able to. I mean, we 25 years, that's all, it's a young democracy. And so we started the People's Concert, which is a free concert in the city and in the city square. And all you needed to do was arrive and we would have national, international and African artists perform and it wouldn't cost you a cent. But it was something that we said to Cape Town, thank you for having us. Thank you for allowing us to close the airports and the main roads and the city and create havoc for that week. And this is how we give it back. And I'm very proud of that. I think giving back is so important to the community and allowing a people that was so humiliated by apartheid for most of their lives to be able to stand in front of the stage and not having to spend a cent to go into the Golden Circle elite area. But just by birth and just by being there, being able to stand in front of that, that port in front of the stage and look up and say, I am the Cape Town International Jazz. This is my festival. Because it's not us. It's not Rashid Erdogan, myself, or the companies. It belongs to the people of Cape Town, the people of South Africa. They made it what it is by attending and supporting. All we did was do the conduit. Well, I know the last year and now going into the second year has been quite challenging for the world. So what can we expect for 2022? I would wish that we could have a festival in 2022. I am monitoring with the whole group we call Capenza, which is mostly promoters of color. We've been monitoring how we can get together as a form to have a festival and, and when are we going to be allowed to. I think that if we go next year, you're going to find, and I'm glad that you particularly, who have been with us so many years, will notice that I'm not going to have 20 chandeliers. I'm not going to have mowing in every room. I'm not going to be doing a lot of things that I have now in this COVID period found to be unnecessary. And I'm saying I as a team. 
We've looked at it, we've really assessed it and said, why don't we charge the public less and actually put less of these trappings on it and let's actually make this festival in 2022 a festival ready for the people. Well, we will certainly look forward to it as well. We had a group plan to come in 2020 and we were going to reschedule it for 2021 and we have rescheduled it for 2022. So no matter the venue, we will certainly look forward to doing that. Because of people like yourself and some more people in the States, it really has made our international festival truly international. And, and we really appreciate it so much because word of mouth is worth 50 million times more than billboards. And just you going out on air with your radio station and actually speaking to people one-on-one means so much to us and to the brand. And, and, and I really, really respect you for 20 years of, of coming to the festival and actually taking time out in such a bad time to speak to me. I really appreciate that. The pleasure is mine. And thank you so much again for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. Well, when we come back, I'll have part two of my chat with Tuisha D. Rogers Simpson, Vice President of Brand and Partnerships at the National Museum of African American Music. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm Javon Harley, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. The website, TravelingCulturati.com. Go ahead and check it out and check out Fantastic Croatia coming up August 27th to September 4th. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born from the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. And one cultural aspect that is deeply rooted in many cultures is music. I'm excited about the National Museum of African American Music, mainly because music was such a part of my upbringing. Today, part two of the Culture Report with Tuisha D. Rogers Simpson. She is first and foremost a creative problem solver, the former vice president of strategic partnerships for Urban One. Tuisha has been recognized by MSNBC, NPR, and Essence as a strategist, producer, and industry thought leader in multicultural media and consumer insights, and currently is the Vice President of Brand and Partnerships at the National Museum of African American Music. You have more than 25 interactive touch points and seven galleries, but the one gallery, like with the Wade in the Water, for example, really taking us back to some of those beginning days. That's exactly it. It's actually the first gallery, the one I mentioned, the 1619, where we start our timeline. In our story, we talk about the Africans arriving to America and what they bring with them in regards of their beliefs, communication, style of music. And so in that gallery, we start to discover what it was like to be in America at that time and the origins of the spiritual, which then grew into gospel. And then as you just talked about, you discover that and gospel was very, very instrumental to what we know as blues. And blues has become truly the cornerstone of black music because Blues was all about storytelling, all about, you know, the experience, all about the revolution that was taking place, you know, around the time of Great Migration and the expression of the Black American experience. And it really is like, if I can 
have some license they almost like a motherboard to all music folk music country music what we know as rock music again like you said hip-hop naturally r&b rhythm and blues really sprung from that african-american experience in the south and in the americas and impacted so many different other genres and you said it exactly right there's so many folks that we know contribute to this sound uh, to this culture to what we enjoy and know whose stories have never been told and some folks that we do know whose stories have never been told so if i have a minute it's a really cool tidbit that you can find in our crossroad galleries which is dedicated to the blues a tidbit around Jimi hendrix and lots of things i know that Jimi hendrix actually spent some time here in nashville and he performed on Jefferson Street, which was a very, very popular row in Nashville, especially for the Chitlin Circuit performances and for performers. And this is where Jimi Hendrix actually started playing the guitar with his teeth. And he did that because the audiences here in Nashville were so hard to please because they were so used to seeing great acts that he had to come up with something different and amazing to stay relevant. And so, you know, again, the stories like that of folks we do know, but there are also some stories of some people we may not know that all contribute to what we experience it is, as we know black music. Yes, and it sounds like it's a museum, really, for the entire family, so the children can come and not feel like they're just there in their parents' time of music. Yes, I'm so glad you mentioned that. That is 100% true, and not only is it multi-generational, but it's for everybody. We're talking about black music, but one of the things we want to really emphasize on is it's for all ages, and for anyone who appreciates the American story, because that's what we're telling. It's part of American history. And so, yes, there is something for everyone. You can be a music lover and you'll fall in love. You can be a historian and you will fall in love. You can be a child and love the interactive and be able to see artists that you know, such as Beyonce and Justin Timberlake mentioned, right? And then to your point, you know, share that moment with your grandmother watching James Brown on our, you know, interactive, if you will, dancing performing and being able to call out how you see the same dance moves of Michael Jackson and Chris Brown, Neo, and whomever else you know we have that are now our contemporaries, right? And so it truly is a magical place where everyone can find something to engage in. And when you think about it, I know if I just think about my own experience, my introduction to music really came from my parents and their siblings. One thing in a lot of households, but certainly in African-American households and in mine, you know, your aunts and uncles came over and they were playing their music and you sat and watched them dance and sing and all of these things. And my father would take us to the James Brown concerts. And for us, that was huge because we were so tiny, but he would take us all because he loved it. And so that's our introduction. And then, of course, we start to find our own way in music and the things that we love and like. But I think it starts with that generation. And as you mentioned, generational experiences, I think, are just fabulous. Isn't it amazing that when we think about fond memories or any memory we have, there's a soundtrack to it? Absolutely. And, and that's, that's one of the things we hear folks comment about at the museum. Like they walk into them and say, I remember where I was, what was happening, or a loved one or a moment in my life that I resonate with this song, with this performer. And listening to you share that beautiful moment, again, that's the type of emotion that we like to invoke, if you will, at the museum. There's just so many ways you can go through this and experience it, and that's one that has come up quite a lot. Folks have walked up like, this brought back so many great memories of my mother, my grandmother, cleaning the house on Sundays, my first time going to church, that family reunion we went to, 
you know, when I got married, actually it was a guy who came in and said, Tina searched for the song that him and his wife danced to when he found out that he had it in one of our playlists. And he downloaded and sent it to his wife. I don't know how to explain how amazing that is, that even on a, like a deeper personal level, again, the way we're able, the music has been constructed to touch people in that type of way. Absolutely. Now, I was reading about it being a tour, so I was wondering, are there docents and guided tours? Is it self-guided? We do have docents, but our docent program, due to COVID, is not active yet, but there's something to look forward to. And a lot of museums have suspended that particular part. Now, what about groups? Yes, so we do have group sales, because the way groups work, just like everyone else in COVID, if you're in a group, an identified group, you're more than welcome to go to the museum. Post-COVID, Yes, we failed with those group discounts, and we welcome groups. We are really encouraging everyone to think about this again as a huge attraction. We have so far hosted corporate groups, families. We have a couple of folks looking at it for family reunions because it truly is a destination. In Nashville itself, and Nashville is a great city to come visit, as well as girls' trips because Nashville is the number one bachelorette city. So those are already taking place and happening through our group sales. And also, I don't know if this is part of groups as well as weddings. This is itself a venue. We have a multi-purpose room. We have a beautiful lobby area that we can use for weddings that can seat up to maybe four or 500 people. Our theater can fit up to 200 people, as well as a resource center. So on top of groups, we also have the accommodations to host events as well. Well, you are just giving me a ton of ideas. As I said, you know, planning for these post-COVID, but I've got a milestone birthday coming up in a few years, so I'm going to start planning for that. <laughs> I love that. Thanks. Can you please call me for that? Um, I hope I'm not inviting myself, but I would love to help you plan that, and the museum is a perfect place to do it. Just imagine a great celebration, music everywhere, and this wonderful tour and interactive. I think it brings amazing birthday party. Absolutely. And not to mention that my travel company, we do groups. And so I know I've got groups that I could have lined up waiting to come, self-included. I always go places that I love to go to and I like to do things that I like to do. And then I tell my clients, come with me. (laughs) I love that. But please send them our way. I think one of the things that we're super proud of is that we have this whole support of the Nashville tourism. They are super supportive. We were very, very close in hand with them. And I should say that we have a relationship with hotels, other attractions, restaurants. And so it really is a great group trip. We're hoping that with the museum, we're able to call more conferences, sororities and fraternities and churches to really look at us seriously and come visit and plan their conferences and everything else around the museum. We would love that. With your rotating exhibits and artifacts, I'm sure you get a lot of things donated, but will there be a good number of rotating ones? Because I can just see this as a museum that people would want to come back to again and again. We actually, in the seven galleries that I mentioned, one is a rotating gallery. And it's the first exhibition in that gallery will actually be dedicated to the fifth Jubilee Singers. And we'll tell that story there. But that gallery is just for that purpose when we have traveling exhibitions or something special we like to curate outside of our storyline. In addition, we will rotate out our exhibitions. And one of the things that I love about our museum is that our storyline is so amazing that when we receive an artifact, we won't just swap it out, but we'll make sure that it fits with the story that we're telling or create a storyline, make sure that it goes with it. 
And last but not least, I know people don't think about it this way, but because of the level of technology that we have in the museum, we will be updating our technology often, meaning that there will be more playlists, there will be more performances as we're showing them, and added to that as well. And so we are talking about, we think about museums, we think more standardized items, we have a technology piece that allows us to also refresh information as well. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier just made me think about how Nashville, until now, of course, has been known as the country music capital. So how has and is the National Museum of African American Music changing that? We're adding to it because the country music notion of Nashville, yes, is very true. But I know the city's been working really, really hard to tell the story of how it's a music city. Music City has always been a diverse city where many of people have come through and lent their talent and their voice. And what the museum is doing is just amplifying that and just showcasing that and showcasing that, taking the title of Music City very seriously and creating another touch point to tell a story, an American story, a story of a genre of music that's, you know, that's just so important in the city dedicated to music. And so we hope that when folks come through and come through our institution um, and engage with us, that they realize there's just so much more to the city, to the story, and to our American culture. I'm looking forward to it. What's the website? www.blackmusic.com. Please visit us, and that's where you also can secure your tickets, as well as find out more information about the museum. Tawisha, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This has been such a pleasure, and I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen.